You guys can go ahead and bring the lights up for me, please. Good morning. How is everyone? Great, great job this morning. Uh, Clay, the band, uh, Tina, thank you for reading. Um, great, great day yesterday. We took some, some kids uh, to Camp Rudolph. We had about 100 or so folks out there uh, to do a Help Build Hope home. And uh, that home went to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina yesterday, and there's going to be a family that receives that home in the next six months that doesn't have one. And so that's just, that's awesome. And it was a great day yesterday, and we just give God praise for that. And uh, just again, thank you guys for being here today. The next two weeks, I'm excited. We're going to be in John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be talking about the woman at the well. And so if you guys have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there and get that ready, we're going to be starting there here in just a few minutes. John chapter 4 is in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So, I don't have a page number for you this morning. I can tell you what it is on my Bible, but it probably wouldn't be the same as yours. So, 863. 863. All right, tomorrow is uh, an exciting day for, for me and Robin. Uh, we go to the, to the doctor tomorrow and we find out what we're having, boy or girl. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know, Robin's pregnant. And uh, so I thought about what I would do this morning is just go ahead and take a pull from you guys, okay? And so uh, I, I kind of have an idea of what I think uh, the baby's going to be. Um, and I, I think the, the baby's going to be a girl. I think it's going to be a girl. Right, I was right. I was right with Jude, okay? I had this, just this gut feeling that Jude was a boy. And, uh, and so how many of you, raise your hand if you think that Robin is going to have a girl in December? All right, all right. Very good. Now, raise your hand if you think Robin's going to have a boy in December. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Now, tomorrow, we'll find out, and we'll let, uh, let you guys know after we've let family know. And, uh, and if you're right, then treat yourself to uh, your favorite dessert, all right, <laughs> or something. I, I don't know. Whatever. Whatever it is that you do. Uh, so, well, let's, let's open up with prayer, and then we're going to dive into this and, and, uh, and, and start. Father God, I just thank you so much for the time that we've had already just to exalt your son, Jesus, to worship you. Um, Father, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. And Father, right now, I just pray that uh, we would just continue in that worship as we study your word. Father, my prayer this morning is, is that your son, Jesus, would be exalted and that people would see Jesus this morning. But most importantly, Father, that they would see their need for Jesus this morning. Father, that's my prayer. May your Holy Spirit just fill this place and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I think I've shared with you guys in the past that I'm not an artist. Uh, I don't have one artistic bone in my body. Uh, as a matter of fact, go to the next slide. This is, this is my art. This consists of stick figures and, uh, you know, uh, whatever that is there, the well. That, that would be my art right there. Uh, so, so growing up and even present day, my art consists of stick figures and boxes for houses, and I always wanted to be an artist. When I was younger, I used to watch The Joy of Painting uh, with Bob Ross. It came on PBS. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, the happy little tree guy. And I, would, I remember I would lie on my living room floor and, and imitate what he did. Now, the only difference, he was actually painting, and I was tracing over pictures. I remember once my mom saw one of my tracings, and she asked, she said, Aaron, did you draw this? And I remember thinking to myself, I, at that moment, I was like, I could really get away with this. I could, like, yeah, I totally drew this, you know. 
but I decided not to go down that path, okay? And I told her, I said, no, no, it's just a tracing. But you know how moms are. They're like sentimental, right? So she still has some of my tracings that I did when I was, I was like, I was back there a couple months ago helping her clean out some stuff, and I saw one of my tracings. I was like, mom, it's time to get rid of this stuff. Okay, it is, it is time to get rid of this stuff. But that, that's, that's, you know, I wasn't an artist. Um, but I remember when I did my tracings, I always took extra care to stay within the lines when I, when I colored them in. I mean, seriously, I remember in first grade, I mean, there were two things I remember about first grade. Uh, I remember that my, my teacher had a crush on her because I thought she was really hot. Right? And secondly, I remember that she scolded some of our classmates because they colored outside. I mean, in first grade, coloring is important, right? It's critical stuff. I mean, that's what you do. And I remember she scolded some of our classmates because they were uh, coloring outside the lines. I stay in the lines. Now, I don't hang around art circles, but from, from what I hear, there are lots of different kinds of art. But for our purposes today, I want to in introduce you to two. On my left over here, you have what is called sketch art. All right, sketch art, and then over here on my right, you have what is called drip art. Sketch art is, you can tell what it is. Drip art, you can't. Sketch art, the artist, in this case, one of our very own, Dina Phelps, has planned before she started, like she knew, and by the way, if you don't know who that is, that's a picture of her dad, Bob Nearman. And if you don't know who Bob Nearman is, uh, next week he'll be here, I'll show you who that is. And it's a very good painting, but, but, but the artist has uh, taken this picture and she knew, she planned it out before uh, she drew it, she knew exactly what it was going to be, and uh, it's defined lines, and, and, and you can tell what it is. Drip art, on the other hand, okay, looks more like the artist took a few paint cans and just kind of threw them on the canvas altogether. Now, I had a good friend in high school whose boyfriend was an artist, and for her parents' birthday, he gave them a drip art type of painting. I'll never forget this. I actually thought about trying to contact her and seeing if they still had this picture because I wanted to get a picture of it. But I'll never forget it. I also never figured out what it was. Her parents hung it over their toilet in their half bath, and I don't know if that was a sign of what they thought about it or if they were just hoping that somebody would come in and just like, hey, I know what this is. You know, I don't think that ever happened. But here's the point I make, okay? Now listen closely. I believe sketch art seems like the way that a lot of people relate to Jesus and religion in general. That there's this an exact polished product that we should go for. And the lines are clearly drawn and we are taught from an early age that in order to follow Jesus, we must stay within the lines. And I believe that Christians and non-Christians have both been affected by this sketch art mentality of Christianity. For instance, I grew up in the church, and for the longest time, it felt like following Jesus was a formula. And it's interesting today that, uh, that over the next two weeks, we're going to be uh, talking to Jesus and having this conversation with this, this woman at this well over water. And if you know science, the, uh, on the periodic table of elements, the formula for water is H2O. However, Jesus offers this woman living water, which is himself. And what I want you to know today is that there is no scientific formula for that. Do this, don't do this, read your Bible, pray. It, it felt very mechanical to me growing up. Don't cuss, you know, don't, don't watch rated R movies. It was like you had to fit into this nice, neat little picture. For us, the big deal growing up was music. Don't listen to that secular music, it's of the devil. So I felt guilty because I would listen to, to bands like Black Sabbath. You know, or I would listen to Dave Matthews' band, or I, or I loved Michael Jackson growing up. I still love Michael Jackson. I know, shame on me, right? 
I have his classic album, Thriller. I love that thing. It's like we've been taught that all Jesus came to do was to sanitize us. It's like he's got this big sanitizer bottle up there, and he squirts down some sanitizer on us. And to make sure that we have the right friends, the right beliefs, the right habits, the right moral compass. And my question is, is this the goal? Is this what Jesus died for? And so we tell people to stay within the lines. Don't color outside the lines. It becomes more about conforming to a pattern or a tradition rather than actually getting to know Jesus. And see, what happens is we feel this weight that we somehow have to measure up in order for God to love us and accept us as if we have to do our part. You know, we feel guilty if we accidentally paint outside the lines, if we miss a reading or if we listen to secular, if I watch Waterboy, you know, H2O with Adam Sandler. I feel guilty about that. And we feel like, man, if, if, you know, if we do this, then, then we're not measuring up. And it's almost like we got this mentality that, that God sent Jesus but I still have to do my part to earn salvation. Like there's, there's steps that I've got to take. There's this formula that I have to do. And when reality hits and we struggle with things like anger, man, I just I got angry the other day, or, or we lose our temper, or we get impatient, or we struggle with pride, or we have those addictions, you know, we struggle with, maybe it's a food addiction or alcohol or whatever it is, or we have this, this moral failure. You know, maybe in the heat of passion you have sex before marriage. Or maybe you're a couple and then you get divorced and you're thinking to yourself, man, you feel this weight and this rigid, you know, conformity to this religion. You're like, man, I painted outside the lines. What am I going to do now? And you feel like that God doesn't love you. Basically what happens is your life becomes a mess like this. And we've been conditioned to stay within the lines. And we say God doesn't love me and... And when we mess up, we feel like that we can't pick the brush back up and paint again. My dad's a, another great example. My dad grew up in the church. When he was 14, he walked away. In his adult life, I can remember uh, when I began to go around him. Well, I didn't have much of a relationship with him growing up. He wasn't around that much. But when I got to, to high school, I started to hang around with him a little bit more. And then when I got into my 20s, because and, 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 I kind of stepped away from, from church and Jesus and that whole thing, and then I came back in my 20s, I began to, to pursue my dad, and I began to ask him about his relationship. And, and he would always come back with things like, you know, I don't need that. Or if I would invite him to church, he would always say, you know, if I come to church, the roof will fall in. I'd be like, that's okay, we want a new building anyway. And uh, we'll just let you go in first, you know. And, um, but he would always come back with things like that. Well, when he was 68 years old, um, he had a stroke. And I truly believe that that stroke uh, was God-ordained because it was during that two-year period that his heart had softened. And it was during that period that I, shared, I told Robin, I said, I'm going back home. I said, uh, this has just been shortly after we moved here. And um, I said, I'm going back home for, for a week. And I said, pray for me because I'm going to just lay it out to my dad and just tell him, tell him I'm going to share the gospel with him. And so I went to my dad, and I sat in his, in his kitchen table, and, and the stroke had debilitated. I mean, he was just, he couldn't, he couldn't do function. I mean, he was just bad off. And so I sit there at his kitchen table, and I said, Dad, I just want you to know that God loves you, that God accepts you as you are, that he sent his son to die for you, and that Jesus paid the price for your sins. And you just need to surrender your life to him. 
And I left him with some material there. I'd given him some scriptures to look over. And I came back a couple days later, and we had a conversation. And you want to know what the one question that my dad had? He said, Aaron, do I have to quit smoking? My heart broke. Because you know what I realized at that point? That when my dad was 14 and he left the church, he had been told that you smoke, you paint outside the lines, you can't follow Jesus. My dad said, you know what? That's not for me. And that's what he was told. And I feel like this is the kind of the, the, the mentality that we have. And this is why I love this story. This story reveals, hear me out here, okay? This story reveals the unhappy truth about ourselves. The, the woeful, unhappy, miserable truth about ourselves. And an amazing, wonderful truth about Jesus. And that amazing, wonderful truth that reveals about Jesus is that he gives hope to us in our woeful, miserable, unhappy condition. Guys, I'm here to tell you this morning, God knew we were going to spill a lot of pain. Because of sin in our lives and in our world, we look more like this. I mean, let's be honest, this is reality. When our lives are a mess, what we need most in that moment is not a formula. But we need Jesus. We don't need do this or do that. But what we need is Jesus. And that's the good news this morning. That Jesus comes to us in our mess. That Jesus knows everything about us. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. The things that you would not tell people. I mean, this is why we put up walls. This is why we put on masks. Because we don't want people to see the true side of us. And yet, God knows everything. And he loves us. And what I want you to know this morning is go, go to that uh, first slide, uh, Courtney. The first slide. What I want you to know this morning is that you are fully known and fully loved. So let's start in verse 9 this morning. The text has already been read for you. Let's start in verse 9 so I can give you some context of what's happening in this passage. This is a great passage here, okay? This is what it says. Because I've got, I got to give you a little bit of background here, so I want you to hang, out, hang, hang with me here. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, go ahead and go to the map, uh, Courtney. All right, he, uh, it may be hard to see for some of you, but I, I want you to notice three, three things up there. You see Galilee in the north, Samaria in the center, and then Judea on the south. See, in Jesus' day, even still today, the piece of land that we would currently call the Holy Land is about 120 miles that stretches along the Mediterranean Sea. In Jesus' day, this land was divided into three distinct regions. Each of those regions had a particular ethnic identity, religious identity, and in the north was Galilee, and in the south was Judea, and in the middle was Samaria. Up north, in Jesus' day, were Jews that lived in Galilee. And down in the south end, in Judea, were Jews. But in the middle, there were Samaritans who had their kind of own hybrid, crazy religion. Uh, they were a mixed race. They were in many ways considered outcasts, despised, and hated. And so it was very uncommon for there to be any sort of friendship between these two people, Jews and Samaritans. Now the hatred stemmed all the way back to the Old Testament, about 722 B.C., this group of people called the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians lived north of Galilee, and I'm going to tell you right now, man, they were some bad mamajamas, right? They hated the Jews, and they were wanting to destroy them, and they wanted to invade their area. 
And so what happened is the Assyrian army invades, captures Israel, and exiles them to another place. So what you have is you have some Jews that are living as refugees, but then there were some Jews that were allowed to remain. And the ones that remained had been displaced. So it wasn't like they were able to stay in their own comfortable home. You know, it's like they'd been, they had been displaced. You know, they were living somewhere else, and it wasn't like they had their comfortable, nice living space. All right? But the problem was that the Assyrian army allowed their people, as well as other surrounding nations, races, and religions to come and live where this, this, these displaced Jews had previously lived. They took over their crops. They lived off their work. And the whole point was for the invading country, in this case Assyria, to demoralize Israel in such a way that they would lose their heritage, their identity, and lose their religion and their faith. And so what happened is this group of Jews that were left to live among the Assyrians and surrounding pagan nations had a very crucial decision to make. Do we remain faithful to our God and to our convictions, or do we compromise and give in? Well, you can read what happens in 2 Kings and Chronicles, but if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, let me go ahead and give you the spoiler alert, okay? They compromised. They started blending their religion with other religions, and they worshipped and the worship of the one true God with many gods, to the point that they were offering their own kids as sacrifices to pagan gods. The Jews began to intermarry and produce children and merge their spiritual lives together. So you can imagine how this made those who had been exiled feel. They were probably really, really, really mad. Right? These were family and friends and loved ones doing terrible things. And so years later, when God begins to bring the exiles back from captiv- captivity, you have this tension between the ones that stayed behind and compromised their beliefs and the others that were exiled. And they began to hate each other on every level. It was, it was racial, it was ethnic, it's cultural, it's religious. And so fast forward to Jesus' day. And if you were a good Jew, and what I mean by that is if, if you were a good Jew, if you followed the, the Old Testament law, the books of Moses, okay, you were going to travel from Judea to Galilee, or vice versa, you would go out of your way to avoid walking through Samaria. It was that bad. They didn't want to associate with them. They did not want to walk on their soil. They just didn't want to have anything to do with them. It was that bad. And so I wanted to to see the animosity that exists between Jews and Samaritans to help us understand the complexities of this story and, and, and what Jesus does here. So verse 1, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea south and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his sons Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well. It was about noon. That's important to note. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, I want to hang out in verse 7 there for a second. It's an interesting verse, and we can learn so much about Jesus from this verse. See, in this culture and in Jesus' day, women were more likely to fetch water for their families. And because of the hot, arid desert land, you've got to remember, this is the Middle East today, Okay? They would likely go early in the morning or later in the evening. I mean, think about just even here in Chester, right, how sometimes it gets really hot and humid. And if you want to get outside in the summer and do something, when do you typically want to do it? Early morning, right? Or late evening when the sun's gone down. And so it's no different here. 
So John, who is the writer of this gospel, gives us some insight about this woman's reputation in her community. See, in this culture, the well was like our modern-day coffee shop or laundromat. It's where everybody gets to visit and talk. And if you're from a small town, there's usually a place everybody goes to hang out. And if you want to know what's going on and get on the town gossip, you go to that place. Well, in Samaria, that place was the well. You know, it, it was a place where, where women got together and they talked and they say, yeah, how, how's your husband doing this week? How did he do in that golf tournament he played in last week? You know, uh, did you get the DVD player in your minivan fixed? You know, or, or uh, you know, is little Bobby potty trained? Right? I threw that in there because that's what Rod and I are going through right now with Jude, potty training. It's no fun. It's no fun. But this woman doesn't have that opportunity. She intentionally comes at noon, the hottest part of the day, all by herself. Why? Maybe it's to avoid the stares that she gets from the other women. Yeah, maybe it's to, to avoid the daggers that she gets, and, and maybe, maybe the women are like, well, are you going to take my husband next? You know what I mean? Maybe she gets some, some slurs, you know, whatever the case may be. And maybe they stuck up their noses and give her dirty looks. And maybe it's public shame that contributes to this woman's isolation. I mean, think about this for a second. If the Samaritans were rejected and hated, and then you being a Samaritan were rejected and hated by your own people, that's the bottom of the food chain right there, right? I mean, there's no, I mean, that's, that's, there's no lower you can go. I mean, you're really by yourself. And so what Jesus does here is a massively big deal. Jesus puts his reputation on the line. Not only did Jesus engage this woman, but Jesus initiates the conversation. Again, in this culture, a man would never speak to a woman. Never. And it's not just any woman, but it's a Samaritan woman. And it's not just a Samaritan woman, but it's a very sexually loose Samaritan woman. I mean, this woman had not only painted outside the lines, She's not only drip art, but she's off the canvas. I mean, this woman's life is a mess. But Jesus not only talks to her, but he speaks to her kindly and he extends a hand of friendship to her. He, he, he knows about her immorality and he still engaged her in conversation. Jesus asked this woman for a drink. Now, and I understand if a Jew is traveling through Samaria, they would always carry their own dishes, right? I mean, this is crazy. This is what they did. They would carry their own dishes. That way, if they had to get water from their well, they had their own cup. Or if they had to eat, they had their own dishes. I mean, can you imagine going to somebody's house and taking your own dishes and pulling them out? I mean, what kind of, what kind of uh, sign would that, would, that, would that give them? They didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to touch it. But Jesus initiates the conversation. I want you to think about this. this. This may be the first meaningful conversation that this woman has had with anyone except for the man that she's living with and taking advantage of her. That might be the only guy in her life that she talks to, and now Jesus talks to her. Could Jesus be different? In the past, if a man sat down to talk with her, it was because he had an ulterior motive. So in this verse, Jesus, Jesus basically puts his reputation on the line, and he breaks about three Jewish customs. He talks to a woman, he talks to a Samaritan, and he drinks from her cup. I mean, this would get him disbarred from the rabbi association. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is not good, okay? 
But what this shows us is that Jesus will risk everything. Hear me out. Jesus will risk everything to seek this woman's salvation. Jesus will risk everything in order to show his love and acceptance toward this woman. To show that this woman is fully known and fully loved. Jesus is pursuing this woman in her sin, in her mess. Jesus doesn't act repulsed by this woman. He doesn't look at her with shame. He doesn't say, uh, you know I, know, I know what kind of woman you are, and, and, and really what I would need you to do is, is kind of give you six months. Uh, let me give you a list of things to do. Okay, do this. Okay, do that. Once you straighten your life up, then, then I'll have a conversation with you. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus pursues her in her mess, And why would Jesus walk away or avoid her? Because he is the remedy. And Jesus always pursues us in our mess. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he left everything. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He left those things, and he came to earth to pursue us in our mess. You see, Jesus is our remedy. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let that sink in. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, there is nothing in this Samaritan woman that would draw Jesus to her, and that's the point. This woman has absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. She's disliked by her own people. And there is nothing in us, nor there anything that we have to offer God that would draw him to us. And my question is, is why would, I mean, that's the way it should be. I mean, if, if we have anything that we can bring to the table, then God doesn't receive all the glory, right? I mean, if, if, if God gives salvation, it's all up to him. But if we have anything to bring to the table, then he doesn't receive all the glory. And that's the point, is Jesus receives all the glory. There is nothing you and I can do to make God love us more. And there is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. Let's continue on. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this wealth and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty, and I don't have to keep coming back here to draw water. So Jesus continues this conversation about water, but he's talking about it metaphorically, and she's talking about it literally. What Jesus is doing is he is trying to help this woman see her need for him. I mean, think about where they're having this conversation. It's in the Middle East in a very dry, arid region of the country. There's no abundance of fresh water. And we'll explore more of this next week, and so I want to encourage you to come back next week and maybe even invite a friend And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this whole water thing and what this means. But in the Old Testament, the phrase living water was a metaphor referring to God's grace, salvation. But obviously, this woman's heart is a little hard and a little closed off 
And maybe it's because of the relationships she's been in. It's just, she's just in a mess. Her life is a mess. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. He's setting her up. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Did you see what Jesus just did? He draws this woman's attention to her greatest sin in her life. Now, I'm sure when Jesus spoke those words that she was painfully reminded of a past filled with guilt and shame. I mean, how many of us have made those painfully regretful decisions in our life that we wish we could take back, right? Those those things that when we think about them, we just kind of cringe, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I wish I could do that over again, you know what I mean? You have those moments? That was that woman's moment, man. She's just like, it's like a dagger just pierced her heart. I mean, how many of us are dealing with that one sin that just seems to continue to rear its ugly head? And Jesus just laid out her morally messed up life. He just said, this is, this is what your life looks like. He exposed the whole truth. Jesus does it gently. He doesn't do it, he's non-judgmentally. It's, it's like Jesus walks directly past the barriers around this woman's heart as if he had been destined to live in and warm those cold chambers. I mean, she's got to be stunned. How did you know this? And not only know this, but you still desire to have a conversation with me. I mean, you know my deepest, darkest sin, and you still want me. For the first time in this woman's life, she was fully known and fully loved. And this is what Jesus offers us. That's why we love the cross of Jesus. And if we can grasp the cross, I think we can get it. And this flies in the face of religion. This flies in the face of this sketch art mentality. Because we didn't do anything. And that's the point. While we were still sinners, while I was steeped in sexual immorality, while I was steeped in idolatry, while I was a liar, while I was a cheater, while I was a drunkard, While I was a you fill in the blank, Christ died for you. God's love for you flows through the death of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel good news. There's nothing you have to do to earn God's love and acceptance. See, even when others or even when you can't see the beauty in your drip art, Jesus is your greatest admirer. Jesus doesn't offer you a formula, do this or do that, but Jesus offers himself a relationship. Now, every single week, we do what's called communion. And if you are regular here, you know what that's about. And what communion basically is, is um, hang with me here for a second, okay? Communion is, uh, is about a time where we celebrate what Jesus did for us, okay? And... Um, We remember that the the, the bread represents Christ's body that was broken for us, and and the juice represents his blood that was shed for us. And this is what I want you to do during this time of communion, okay? The guys are going to come around. They're going to pass the trays. You're going to take a piece of bread. Sometimes I like to grab a handful of bread because it's that one piece that doesn't do it for me, you know what I mean? So I like to take a handful sometimes. And take the, if you need a couple of juices, go ahead. 
Um, but take that stuff, okay? Take the juice and the bread. And this is what I want you to do during this time, okay? I want you to think about that verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is the way God showed his love for us, is that while we were still sinners, let that sink in. Christ died for you. Celebrate that this morning. As you take the bread and as you take the juice, celebrate that Christ died for you while we were sinners. That Jesus pursues us in our mess. And after we take communion, the band's going to come and they're going to sing. And I just want to give you time to respond. And if you've grown up all your life and, and this is the type of mentality that you've, you've grown up with, this sketch art mentality, where you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, like it's your job to clean yourself up, and you're, just, you're, just, you're going through the emotions, man, I want to I encourage you to come down and just thank, thank God for the cross because Jesus is offering himself. It's Jesus plus nothing. And if you're here this morning and you've never uh, named Jesus as, as your Savior, I want to encourage you to, to make that decision this morning to surrender your life. Here, here's what I want you to know. Um, Jesus is Lord whether or not you make him Lord or not. Uh, okay, the Philippians, it says that, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. The question is, is there, will you do it now or will you do it when he comes? Okay. So I just want to encourage you this morning. I want to give you some, some time to come down to the cross and just thank Jesus for what he did and that he loves us in our mess. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for, uh, thank you for your love for us that, God, this is not something that just, you, you, you didn't wing this, okay? This is not something like, okay, Adam and Eve sinned and let me, let me pull out this in my back pocket. You had this designed and planned before the creation of the world. And God, it was designed in such a way so that you would receive the glory. And Father, I pray this morning if there are some folks here that have struggled with this formula, mechanical do this, do that type of religion. God, I pray that they would be able to see Jesus for who he is. God, that, that it's not about a formula, but it's about a relationship with Jesus. Father, may your son be exalted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.